Welcome to Behavior Babes podcast presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Aloha, Shane. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. We have the great Shane Spiker here on the call. Do you mind doing a, a brief introduction or as long of an introduction as you'd like to get us started? Yeah, for sure. So, uh, so my name is Shane Spiker. I am a behavior analyst in the uh, North Florida area, uh, right outside of Daytona Beach. I am. Um, I've been certified since 2012. Worked in the field for a little bit longer than that, and um, specialized working with like uh, crisis management, some pretty intense uh, individuals with problem behavior and uh, sex offenders. That's kind of my area of expertise right now. Well, that is something I did not know about you. Um, and that is going to be, yeah, that's going to bring us to some cool conversations here. Um, one of the things we wanted to talk about today was self-care, but before we get there, let's talk about some of those really tough sort of crisis situations and things that really make the need for self-care so important. How did you get into the field of behavior analysis, and um, how did you find those areas of subspecialty or interest? <laughs> so... Um, I'm not, I don't have one of those interesting stories that I think, you know, you hear those, those really like inspiring stories, uh, that people are like, you know, I had, I had family members that had special needs and I just discovered this and it was life changing. Um, I was a barista at Starbucks and I had gone back to school for psychology. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I was interning with a friend of mine, um, in, uh, in case management. So I was, I was about like, I would say maybe like three months away from, from becoming a case manager in Florida. And she had asked me as I'm reviewing and filing paperwork, she's like, what do you want to do with this internship? Like, what does this look like? And uh, I remember, I think, and I think I was actually holding some, some notes, like some progress notes in my hands from a local ABA company. And I just said, uh, this behavior analysis thing sounds cool. And uh, so from that call, she, ca- she actually called my first uh, behavior analysis um, place of employment where um, I got hired from the phone call because I was big enough to take a punch. And then I started working with um, some individuals that were pretty intense um, and just kind of really very honestly fell into it. The first six families that I worked with were highly intense, um, highly dangerous situations. And just I I think that's just how I fell into crisis. Like that was kind of my trial by fire uh, orientation to behavior analysis. It was just, just right into the, just right into the flames. And what about your experience or kind of overview that you knew about behavior analysis made you think that ABA could help situations like that? Like, how did you know about that? Uh, so I didn't. That was the, that was the whole thing. I, I, I'm, I, I am not even exaggerating when I say I was looking at notes and I said, this behavior analysis thing sounds cool based on the title alone. I was like, this is going to sound great. So then I, you know, when I when I stumble into it, I mean, I literally my first the first time I got exposed to behavior analytic practice was walking into a family home, and this was I mean this was 2010, so this was a while ago. This was before all the current standards and all the stuff like that. Um, and in Florida, there weren't a lot of um, there. I mean, there were no insurance mandates. There was no there's nothing like that. So when I got exposed to it, it was there the the the, the standards were pretty mild. So I got into it kind of walking into a home, a family home, saying. 
hey, he's big enough to take a punch, he's interested in behavior analysis, he's studying psychology, and he's going to take a 20-hour training on behavior analysis. Um, I went with my supervisor. She was training me, and I was shadowing and doing some pairing and stuff, but um, it, was, it was very much so trial by fire. So I had no idea what it was going to look like or how it was going to work. Um, I just wanted a job in psychology and just happened to find it. I mean, in some ways, I think your story is like many others in the sense that if, if you didn't have a personal connection in that way, it's more of like, it just, I fell into it. I remember in my undergrad, it was like a health and PE professor or something in education. I was studying elementary education and she came up to me and she said, you know, I think you need to read this book. And she gave me in like 1999, uh, a Cooper Heron and Heward, the first edition or the, the, yeah, I think it was the first edition. Yeah. The first edition. And I was like, who gives, like like a 20-year-old, a textbook, and says, like, you need to read a textbook. Um, but it was super interesting because I then met a family, was looking for part-time work, and I was like, oh, there's a flyer in the hallway. I mean, let me check it out. And I actually was working at a bakery, not Starbucks, in the little college town I was in in West Virginia. But, yeah, I mean, wow, and it's life-changing. So here you are now. Um, you know, seven years later, <laughs> right. certification, which is astounding to think about. And there's this big push in our field, I feel lately, um, and it could just be my impressions and my group on social media, uh, but for thinking about self-care. And maybe that's as a result of just what's going on globally and a more recognized need that we are all very stressed out, um, whether it's our jobs or our <laughs> personal lives. Can you... Yeah share with me like how that became something that you've been focusing on and interested in? Uh, yeah. So for, for me, um, I think that I first, I really recognized it um, working with a couple of colleagues and just kind of going to conferences and just watching, um, you know, not to disparage any behavior analytic conference by any means, but what I kind of noticed was that um, behavior analysts enjoy a beverage or two <laughs> at these conferences um, and it just seemed like everybody was stressed out. Everybody was, I mean, everybody was having a lot of fun at these conferences, but it seems very, um, I don't want to say maladaptive, but it seemed like a problematic coping skill because people would drink and they would talk about um, challenges they had and they would then go back to work and they would work 50, 60 hours a week. I mean, when I was working as an RBT or, or not an, even an RBT, but as a behavior tech at the time, I was working and doing 60 hours a week of, of direct service. And um, I remember being ti just tired from it. It's just, ex it's an exhausting, it can be an exhausting job. And so I just kind of remember, I forget which FABA it was, but it was one FABA where I just kind of was like watching everything. I had a, I'd, I'd watched the behavior analyst walk into a conference and they had a, a soda bottle, but it was full of wine. And I was kind of like, that's, probably socially acceptable because we probably deal with some uh, some things that are a little bit more problematic in the field but here it's uh, it just kind of if the, if anybody else who had not worked in our field had seen that they'd probably think some problematic things so i just remember thinking like oh that's probably a problem with self-care and um you know i i'm pretty hard on myself and in in general and i just started looking at self-care and kind of figuring out how to take care better care of myself and i caught myself one time specifically telling a family that you can't pour from an empty vessel and just having that hit me really hard and just saying like, oh, well, I'm telling this family that like they need to take a break and they need to not be so hard on themselves, but I'm not doing that for myself. So I just kind of started getting interested in studying it there and it just kind of expanded at that point in time. 
I remember a professor in my doctoral program who said to me, what good is it to harness the, the power and the, the magic of the science of behavior analysis to help other people if we can't help ourselves? And I started thinking about that, and um, it was in our behavioral medicine class, so what an appropriate time to make that statement. And he was getting us to think about, you know, um, you know, people's healthy eating habits or smoking habits or sleeping habits or driving habits or studying habits. And it was really interesting to me that I was that far into my studies before I was stopping and even being given almost the permission to, like, hey, you're allowed to slow down. Um, I think yeah. when we're in graduate school, when we're pursuing, like, a, a helping profession as well, we are – Many of us uh, innately, our behavior innately reinforced or intrinsically reinforced by helping other people. And sometimes we know if you put your oxygen mask on first, you can help. I mean, we, we hear that. Um, but I, I really connected to the point you said when you're giving advice to a family and then you come home and you're like, oh, I have nothing left to give. Like, oh, I'm tired. My fridge is empty. Like, like literally. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> So, you know, I think uh, I think many people, myself included, can really connect to the need for self-care. Where does one begin, and how do you incorporate things like that into your daily life? Ooh, you know, if I had a if I had a good answer for that, um, I would I would probably I would probably be able to tour the world and talk about this stuff, you know, and be like that motivational speaker that's like, hey, this is what self-care is. Um, so, just to kind of back up a little bit and talk about what the self-care portion is, like, I found that because I'm doing my, my dissertation on self-care. I'm studying self-care right now. I'm interviewing behavior analysts about it, um, and it's been the, the findings have been really interesting, but what I've found is that nobody can really define it. So even for me to go back and define it, I, have, I struggle with it. The literature, when we go back and look at any of the literature around self-care, is not well-defined, all, going all the way back to the theory that, that coined the phrase self-care um, in the medical model, and we just there's not a good definition for it. So for me personally, um, I've kind of just found that it's just it's being able to draw really good boundaries and to be able to say like you know what I can't do this today. It's being able to say no, which anybody who knows me, anybody who hears this is gonna just laugh that I say that because I don't say no to anything. Um, and uh, you know just being able to say no to people, being able to say like no I can't do that. You know being able to take a step back and say. Um, I just got too much on my plate. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, and, and kind of allowing yourself to, to be able to do that. Uh, I've noticed that that's been a really a big challenge for me. But in my daily life, um, you know, just it's a lot of it's for me really simple stuff. Like I like to read books that aren't behavior analytic. Um, I like to read comic books. I like to um, eat good food. You know, I think those things are nice and simple things for me that that improve my quality of life and, and just kind of like fill my cup a little bit. Uh, a couple of years ago, well, maybe now several years ago, uh, I did a talk. I was invited to do a talk at ABAI one year called Harmonizing School Work Like Life Balance. And I thought, man, that's the pot calling the kettle black. I don't know why I was selected to do that. <laughs> I have no balance at all in my life. And one of the things that it did is it it forced sort of the self-inventory. And that's something that we had talked about with Dr. Becca Tag on one of the other podcast episodes was Start by just looking around, right? Where Where is the need? And, like, that's what you were talking about, too, is, like, you find a need, you fill a need, whether that's with uh, individuals or adults or, you know, children in Florida or whether that's with personal health and self-care. Um, something else that I thought that was really interesting as you're talking about this is 
when we're talking about how do you define it, it's also how do you measure it, right? I mean, there's only right. so many direct and indirect ways. Like we can measure heart rate recovery or we can measure how many miles you walked or ran or stepped or whether or not you went outside today. Like we, we certainly could pick things like that. But what's the overall improvement in someone's aspect and how would a behavior analyst quantify that? I think there's a lot we can offer um, that investigation, but it is, I imagine that it is kind of some uncharted territory, at least for, for some behavior analysts. Now, one of the things that's very hard is to say no. And so a strategy I have to tell people is <clears throat> not right now or I can do that after this other thing gets done. Um, right. Or if you follow back up with me, and if they really do, then maybe it's really important and I can really help them. Or I've gotten to a place where I'm like, you know who's really awesome at that? You want to learn about sustainability? You're looking for a mentor, Molly Benson. Call her. Now, that doesn't help other people say no. Um, but right. <laughs> have you learned or found any other sort of strategies like that where you're not like, okay, I haven't completely achieved my goal, but I found steps to take, uh, anything that might help listeners? Yeah. So I think for me, it was, um, I, you know, I, 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 a couple of years ago, I had done a class on multicultural competencies and studied a little bit about privilege and just kind of the social context around that. And I thought that was really great. And it kind of opened my eyes a little bit to my own, my own privilege. And what it ended up doing was kind of shaping into a, a behavioral repertoire that um, helped to empower others and also to kind of help me delegate stuff. So, um, you know, over the last couple of years, I've been able to speak at conferences and I've taken on all this stuff and I've always been that person that's like, yeah, I'll do it. Yes, I'll do it. Yes, I'll do it. And, um, and finally, I'm like, I got to a point where I, you know, kind of framing, framing a lot of my perspective around this, this idea of privilege, going back and saying, um, well, I don't have to. Like, I'm a straight white guy. Like, I have the opportunity. Like, I, in me taking the opportunity to stand up in front of a crowd and speak is really great because I feel like I have some fun stuff to say, and maybe people do want to hear a little bit about what I say uh, every now and again. But I think, moreover, that there are other people that have more important things to say or better things to say or more succinct things to say that aren't getting the same opportunities. So I've been kind of using that as a way to go back and say, you know, uh, as much as I want to do this and as much as I, I think about this and as, as important as I think the topic of self-care is or, um, you know, anything like that, I can go back and say, well, there's other people that are just as interested that can provide ideas that I don't have. So let's empower them. Let's get them involved in some projects. Let's pull them in and, and really, like, do something more collaborative than I used to. I was very um, – not necessarily, like, uh, you know, flying solo. Like, I've always been a team, a team player, or at least I try to be. But I found more that, like, if I loop people in and say, you know what, maybe I wouldn't do it this way, but I have somebody else to lean on and we can collaborate. And, and it may take a little bit longer than if I just did it by myself, but it's going to be a better product or it's going to be a better talk or a better training because other people are doing it. And I'm giving them the opportunity, and I'm taking a lot of the weight off of me to be able to say, like, I, this, this project is not solely on my shoulders or this this training or this presentation. I can I can kind of breathe easy knowing that, like, somebody else is taking the lead on this. Um, and that's actually helped me kind of say no a little bit, say, you know what, I can't do this by myself. Um, and just being able to pull people in that, that are interested and like work on their passions. And I don't know if that's like a leadership thing or what, but um, it came from a place of like, I can't do this alone anymore. So um, that's probably, that, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think that kind of gives, gives a little bit of perspective on like where I'm at now. Um, not everybody has that opportunity, but that's kind of what I've learned in the last maybe year, year and a half or so. I think sometimes we feel like if there's a fire to be put out and someone has come to us or if there's a fire to ignite and someone has called to us, 
that we want to answer that call, that we want to be supportive, we want to help. But I really do love the perspective that you offer of saying other people want to help, other people want to do, and let me empower them. And we're going to best do that by creating a network and surrounding ourselves with confidence. And that's something I have been so grateful is probably the biggest benefit of the whole Behavior Babe uh, endeavor has been the network, creating people to connect with and to go to. So going to conferences is a great way to connect and to establish a network. Um, You mentioned FABA, so for anyone who doesn't know, the Florida Association for Behavior Analysis, which is a large um, annual conference. What are other ways, Shane, that you stay um, engaged and create a network when you're not at a conference? So I'm, I am incredibly fortunate to work in a position now at my agency where I get to connect with people all over the, the, the country and in, in some parts of the world. So um, I think by happenstance, just the, the position that I'm in, I'm able to, you know, connect with people in Texas or to work collaboratively with people in California or Washington. Um, I've been fortunate enough to really make some cool connections over the years. Um, I didn't have that opportunity a whole lot at the agency that I used to work at, at the smaller agency, but um, when I was working locally in, in Daytona, there is a small network of behavior analysts here that are absolutely wonderful. Just being able to connect with people at, like, uh, say, what are called local review committees, uh, where we would go and we would review treatment plans, um, staying in contact with my mentors while I was going through my programs, staying in contact with other students. Um, one of my best friends lives in Wyoming, and we were uh, colleagues in our, in our PhD program together. Uh, we were peers. And so just being able to just kind of, like, find those natural connections and foster them and, and, and maintain them I think is really important. Um, not everybody has, like, uh, the wherewithal or the, or the time even to, like, kind of water those plants, but I think it's important to be able to notice those connections that make a difference, those networking opportunities that make a difference, and, and never closing a door. Um, I have a close colleague of mine that I drive nuts. She, uh, if she's listening, she's going to love this story, but we, I, I've always lived by the philosophy of, like, why not? And, um, it gets me in trouble sometimes. Um, you know, I've, I've ended up in meetings where people can, you know, suddenly cure autism with chiropractics, um, you know, and, and it's just funny to, to in, in find myself in those situations because I do say why not a lot, but it's opened the doors for a lot of really cool community partnerships, um, a, making a lot of really great connections and just being able to stay in touch with people. You know, I might not be able to um, do anything for them right there at that moment, uh, you know, like kind of like like you said, like when people come to you with a fire or that you can put out or when you when, when people want their fire lit and you have the ability to do that. I can't always do that, but I think that just even the minute I shut the door on that, just close, like just shut them out and, and doesn't provide the opportunity to network and foster that, that relationship. So um, one of the most important things I learned is it's all about people and those relationships. And if you can maintain those and foster those and grow those relationships, then you are going to have this huge network of people and this huge pool of incredible expertise and knowledge to pull from. You've mentioned your colleagues and your programs and your uh, colleagues at places you've worked as well as your professors. And keeping and maintaining those relationships are really critical. And we have the advantage now of online, social media, those um, can offer us opportunities that we didn't have before. I've worked on publications with people sometimes before I'd ever met them in person, and that's just phenomenal to think that you can do that without, um, you know, penning an actual letter and putting it in the mail. Um, right. When you think of the mentors that you've had, whether official or unofficial, um, what are some of the leaders that have really inspired you to become a great behavior analyst in the field? 
Oh, um, I have, I think probably, I, I always go back to three people um, that were really important in my, in my formative years as a behavior analyst. And they taught me so much about just, just you know, because I think the, 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 the position of being a behavior analyst is, is multifaceted, right? And I think that the idea that, um, I think that a lot of behavior analysts come out of, of training without some components. Like maybe they haven't spent a lot, a lot of time in, in the legal field, which, you know, when you're doing advocacy in the legal realm, that's an entirely different language. It's an entirely different skill set, and, and not every behavior analyst gets training in that. They kind of have to learn it on their own or learn from people outside the field. And um, I had three people that that were really instrumental in shaping the behavior analyst I am. And one of them was all about um, staff, making sure that the staff were happy because if you were not able to support your staff, support the families, if you weren't able to get them to do the interventions, then what were you doing anyway? Like they, they're if they don't, if they can't buy in, if they can't um, do the interventions, if they don't trust you, um, if you're not willing to do the work and get your hands dirty with those families, then then why are you even there? So the, he was really instrumental in shaping up my my perspective on on how to interact with people and how to develop those relationships. And then I had another, um, uh, actually my first boss taught me all about um, structure and saying, um, you know, you have to be able to document and to cover yourself and to really think of every avenue possible when you're treating somebody's problem behavior or treating some, you're working with a client or working with a family because um, you just never know what's going to come up. So you have to do everything you can and get really creative and, and think outside the box because she was incredibly creative with stuff too. And then I had a, um, a third colleague of mine and a mentor of mine that I actually currently work with and it drives him nuts when I call him a mentor. But he he always makes me think in such incredibly conceptual behavior analytic terms that it scares me how deep it goes. And it's fantastic because we conceptualize things like alarm clocks being CMORs or we um, we sit and talk about maintenance generalization all the time and look at how we can implement that at the very beginning of services versus the end and really digging into that material. and. I think the three of them together really I, – I would, I would argue that I'm an amalgamation of all three of them, and it's really interesting to see kind of like certain situations come up where, you know, a trait from one mentor comes up or like a skill that I learned that I'm modeling from one mentor pops up. Or, um, but it always goes back to that people thing, and I think that's those – of those three people, all three of them had great relationships with people, and I think that's probably the biggest thing I took from any of my mentorship. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I, for, for me, one, one of the mentors or two of the mentors in my world come back to my parents. And it's interesting because I know people are thinking, but they're not behavior analysts. And they're not. <laughs> you know my parents. They're not. Um, but my father was in the military, and he was always like, if you do this, this will happen. And he was 100% with his fidelity of implementation. So I never uh, was unclear about my boundaries. And um, I, it's funny because I see that in interactions with clients and I'm still working directly in, in certain situations where I'm like, if we say this, we're going to do it. And it's easy for me to follow that role and to understand certain concepts because of certain pa parallels in uh, my personal life. So it's, I, I sometimes joke and say, you know, my parents are the reason I became a behavior analyst. <laughs> I didn't know there was a science that matched their parenting style. And I don't know that they knew that either. So kind of coincidental. Before we get off today, uh, the call, is there anything that you find that um, in that personal sort of way or anybody that's sort of been just pivotal for you in your past um, that hasn't been a behavior analyst that you'd like to shout out or give us some insight to? Um, let us know. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, I think you know, um, 
my parents have been such a, such a big part of who I am as a person. Um, and I think that, you know, going back to, you know, my parents were never, um, they were never very strict parents. They were always, uh, you know, they were just always very sweet. They were always very kind. Um, even in like really tough times. I mean, we didn't have a lot of stuff growing up. We didn't have a lot of, um, you know, I mean, we, we didn't have a big house. We had a, we had a small house that like we had to interact with, with one another. So I think that probably set the framework for kind of who I am as a person. Um, my favorite thing in the world, and this is kind of, I, I've always taken this and it drives everybody that I know nuts because I can never leave a party or a conference without taking an hour to say goodbye to everybody, or I can't go to a city without running into somebody I know, is that my mom knows every single person that lives in our city. And anywhere she goes, somebody stops her to say hi. And um, I've found that that's kind of happened in my own life as an adult, and it's because of the relationships that I foster. So, um, and I think that goes back to the idea of self-care is like, if you're taking care of yourself and you're able to be nice to people, then you're going to foster these relationships and grow. And it just kind of like is this like really cool, like, you know, cycle of reinforcement that goes back and forth, you know, forever. And um, I don't know, I guess my, my, my biggest takeaway and like from those people is just be nice, be nice to people and take care of yourself. Be nice to yourself too, <laughs> you know. One of the best pieces of advice my mom said once was just a reflection of what was happening in my life. And she says, as a behavior analyst, you may understand everything or many things, but it doesn't mean you have to accept all of those things in your life. And I thought, man, she's still just blowing me away, my mind, every day with her knowledge and her power. And it's like, yeah, never underestimate the influence, right, of our environment. I think that's what it is to um, you know, with the parallels of my father growing up, uh, growing up with him in the army, we were moving around constantly, or everyone else around me was. And I kind of attribute that to why I can just walk into a new school or meet a new family and just sort of be like, "Hey, everybody, how's it going?" Not that I don't right. have a normal level of anxiety about, you know, where will I park? Will, am I on time? What will, you know, do they have a dog <laughs> or what have you? But just that sense of like that networking. And so for some people, that's not a skill that they have or that's strong. And so I think, you know, we all need to identify what our strengths are and really kind of tap into them, play into them. Sometimes I say my strengths are my weakness. It's just using the right amount of of, a, of an energy. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and I see a lot of parallels there. So, Shane, I want to really thank you for joining today, for not saying no, um, for saying, you know what, not right now, next week, which is what you said to me. So that was right. really excellent modeling. Um, I really do appreciate having you as a part of the verbal community and now and being able to share your insights and perspectives, hopefully with the larger community of people listening on the podcast. Is there any uh, information or news or presentations or updates that you'd like to share or um, ways that people can get in touch with you or learn more about you? Uh, Yeah. So um, if you... I'm on Facebook. I have no problem with people adding me on Facebook and reaching out. Um, I'm going to be presenting at ABBA this year in Chicago. Um, I'll be at Balk in Connecticut. I'll be at APBA in Atlanta. Um, so I'll be kind of all over the place. And so if you see me, come say hi. I'm the big tattooed guy with a beard, and uh, I'm will likely talk to you for an hour and hang out with you. So um, just reach out. I have no problem um, spending time chatting. So. Um, so, and, and Dr. Kelly, thank you so much for having us, um, for having me on here. This has been really cool. Like, I've been really excited to, like, spend some time with you and talk to you and, and really get some, some really good uh, conversation going. This has been great. Oh, I appreciate it. And I'm going to ask you back again. Um, everyone who comes on the show gets to come again and again because – That's so exciting. 
there's so much to talk about, and I think people are really interested in it, but without um, having to listen to us for 10 hours at a time. So we'll, <laughs> we'll kind of, you know, wrap up there, but really make that promise to commit to come back to have more conversations because it's stuff that I'm definitely interested about, and I know other people are as well. So, Shane, thanks again for joining us. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. For anyone who's interested in learning more about applied behavior analysis, you can go to www.behaviorbabe.com. 